while between uh, our worship uh, songs and the extra hour of sleep, I will trust uh, everyone is rested this morning and uh, won't see any eyelids as uh, we work our way through. Today we come to the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And today we are going to take the first half of that petition. Forgive us our debts. I have resisted to date dividing any of these petitions into two and spreading the sermon out over more than one week. It has been remarkably hard to do almost every week. I think there's too much here to do justice to it in one sermon. But I have tried to hold to the schedule we set, but early this week I realized that the concept of forgiveness is too central to the Christian faith. And this petition is so bold and so shocking and so profoundly disturbing, I am persuaded most people do not understand what it is they are praying when they pray this petition. It is so important and powerful that it needs two weeks. And so I reluctantly waved the white flag early in the week and said we're going to have to change the schedule. And then I realized uh, just uh, two days ago that there's great precedent for this actually because this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Christ feels the need to expand upon. I want to read this for you in context so you understand that. Uh, it, it is Matthew chapter 6 is uh, where we have been as we're working our way through the Lord's Prayer. Starting in verse 5, Jesus is talking about prayer and giving some specific guidelines about prayer and how we should pray. I want to begin reading then in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This petition actually has four parts to it. The first, which we're going to look at today, forgive us our debts. The second is the word as. The third is the, the passage as forgive us our, de our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then the fourth part of this petition is this addendum that Christ adds. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, it may surprise you to see uh, how complicated this is, and in particular surprise you to see that I have given an entire section just to the word as, but as you will see next week when we come to this, this is a remarkably significant word, and I don't think we fully appreciate all that's behind it. But today, we are focused on the first section, the first four words, forgive us our debts. And I want to focus in particular on the first and fourth word, forgive and debts. Now the us our, 
the second and third words, are not insignificant. I will point out again that they are plural, that we are in this together. The, the American proclivity to sort of think of themselves as an individual, completely autonomous, our relationship with God being completely independent of what's going on around us, does not hold up to the scrutiny of Scripture. And this particular petition, these two words, forgive us our sins, suggests or at least hints at the idea that we have some collective guilt. That in addition to our individual sins, there are perhaps some systemic or collective uh, guilt that we bear that we need to think about. We tend not to think that way. There's something there. But I want us to focus on the idea of forgiveness in particular. And so let's start by looking and defining forgive and debt. What exactly does it mean to forgive someone? What does forgiveness mean? Well, I would suggest that when we forgive someone, we give up our right to get even. We, we set aside from the, from the uh, opportunity to extract some sort of revenge. We release someone from any kind of retribution. And this is, of course, much easier to talk about in theoretical terms than it is to do. Because we are not only the offender, as we are looking at today, but we also, of course, are the offended. Without doubt, you will be hurt by someone and already have been. And some of you have been profoundly hurt by other people. You believe that they have intentionally or unintentionally ruined your life in some way. And so the idea that you are to release them, that you're to to let go of that, you're to give up your right to seek some sort of revenge, is quite honestly unthinkable. I understand that. There are many people who think it is unthinkable. In a a, a profound book called Sunflower that was written by um, uh, Simone Wiesenthal, a, a Nazi a uh, concentration camp survivor, uh, a, a Jewish man who just recently passed away. Wiesenthal recounts something that happened to him when he was in a concentration camp. Uh, it was um, by Mauthausen. Uh, the concentration camp was Lemberg. This was uh, towards the end of World War II, and uh, things were going poorly at this point for the Germans. They were taking heavy casualties along the Russian front, and Wiesenthal was at this uh, concentration camp that is, was positioned right next to a school that had been turned into a makeshift hospital and was receiving thousands of wounded Russian soldiers. And one day as he was picking up trash, uh, this nurse comes by and grabs him by the arm and she leads him and she says, you are a Jew, you will do, listen to this man. And he was led into the, alongside the cot of a, of a young German soldier who was um, clearly not doing well and was about to die. And this German soldier said, I must confess my sins to a Jew. I have done horrible things to Jews and I must seek forgiveness from a Jew. And he grabs Wiesenthal's arm and he recounts the truly horrific things that he had done. 
And then as he finished, he looked at Wiesenthal and he said, Will you forgive me? And Simone Wiesenthal looked at him for a second, and then he jerked his arm away, and he backed up and turned and walked out of this room, leaving this young German soldier to die unforgiven. And in his book, Sunflower, uh, Wiesenthal asks the question, did I do the right thing? And in the first edition, there are ten different people who respond. Now, uh, many editions later, there are over 50 different people who respond and weigh in on whether or not what Wiesenthal did was the right thing. And many of them say that it was. And some of those who say that it wasn't, who argue that Wiesenthal should have forgiven this man, argue that, they, that he should have forgiven him not for the sake of the German, but for his own sake. Because when we fail to forgive someone, as the, as the argument goes, it's like drinking poison and hoping that they will die. We're holding on to something and it's going to rot our own soul. So many people suggest that, that what Wiesenthal should have done was forgive him, but not for the sake of the German. Now, I'm not certain at this moment where you're at on this. I, I believe that a book like Sunflower at least reminds us what an incredibly bold request asking to be forgiven is, and it should help us understand how remarkably audacious it is for us to ask God to forgive us. For us to, to expect, for us to simply ask that God would release us from our guilt and our debt. Now, <clears throat> I don't know whether or not you agree that we should forgive yet, but I at least would like you to understand that uh, the definition at its core, perhaps not complete, but at its core, to forgive someone means to give up your right to seek Retribution, revenge, to, to release someone. Now, the second word we have to understand in order to appreciate this petition is the word debt. And I, I just need to be honest, um, it, it's not quite as exciting as some people think. I've had people say, I'm so glad that we're doing the Lord's Prayer because finally someone's going to explain to me when the church decided to stop saying, and then they say whatever word they grew up hearing the Lord's Prayer use, and made this decision to go with the word, and then they insert debt or whatever word is being used at the time. And some people, I, I think, envisioned that there was a big grand meeting, and everybody decided that we were going to change the Lord's Prayer. So I, I just want to set your... Uh, set you on the straight course. Uh, we, there were big meetings, but there haven't been big meetings of church leaders for hundreds and hundreds of years. They, they met early on for the Council of Nicaea to, to, to agree on the wording that would defend the deity of Christ and to write the Nicene Creed and some of these things. What we have here are just simple translation challenges. Now, part of the, the, part of the church will use the word transgression, 
uh, because that's sort of the closest to what the addendum that Christ adds on to the prayer. That's probably the best word. Others say forgive us our sins because they're looking at Luke's gospel. Luke and Matthew, we're in Matthew 6, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they are so synonymous in what they set out. And in Luke's gospel, he, he uses the word sin. It could be that, that, that as he was writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's remembering what Christ said, he writes down sin and Matthew writes down uh, more debt. It could be that Jesus taught this on multiple occasions and that Jesus used different words. Now, the big issue is that the Greek word that gets used in Matthew is a word that is very generic. And so some translate it debt, some translate it trespasses, some translate it wrong. I mean, it's just, it's a big word, and translating committees try and wrestle with what word best captures it. If it's nuanced in any way, it's actually nuanced towards financial debt. But I want to say we don't owe God money. Uh, which is probably a relief to some of you. But uh, so clearly it doesn't mean release us of our financial debt to God. It is moral debt. So when we pray this prayer, what we are in essence saying is, Heavenly Father, I I want to request that you do not seek retribution or revenge, that you release me from the the wrong that I have done to you. It's a profound request. And I think that there are at least three things that are obviously interwoven into making this request. The first is that we are guilty of something. The second is that God is inclined to forgive. And the third is that we are expected to ask. So, there are three things here, and I, I, it's my experience or observation that some people um, don't even accept the starting point. Some people get about half of this, and only a few truly get it all. And so I want to divide my comments at different points here to those who are at different points along this spectrum. First of all, the first point is, When we pray this prayer, we are admitting that we are guilty in some way. We've done something wrong. We have accrued a debt that we want to be released from. Well, I would argue that right out of the blocks, some people have opted out. Some people do not believe, in fact, that they are guilty. The spirit of the age in which we find ourselves is one of relativism, it's one where, where we have downgraded sin to the point that the word is almost never used. And many people say, come on, just lighten up, right? It's okay. Anything goes. Everything's good. I, I'm not a bad person. Uh, sin and, and this idea of guilt is, is, is a throwback to a less enlightened intolerant age. The only thing you have a right to feel guilty about is feeling guilty. God, if he exists, understands. He he gets it. He knows my heart and my good intentions. And besides, I'm not as bad as Hitler and the bad people. Now, I, I always 
want to point out when, when people say, and I'm not that bad, I'm not as bad as, and Hitler is sort of the poster child when you're saying I'm not as bad as, Hitler seems to get used more than most. Well, of course you're not as, as bad as Hitler, but at least recognize that when you say that, you are acknowledging that not anything goes, and you are judging, which is exactly what you don't want other people to do. Your view, this idea that anything goes, is, a, is, is something that freshmen in college can entertain for a while, but it doesn't work in life. It is, a, it is a, a philosophy of life that is riddled with inconsistencies. And while you might want to argue that anything goes when you're the one that gets to do anything, as soon as somebody does something to you that you don't like, you're going to say, that is not okay. So, it's not just that we are the offender wanting a completely blank check to be able to do whatever we want. We often are the offended. This view doesn't work. Nevertheless, most people don't think out their philosophy of life quite that carefully. And so there are many people today who simply don't believe that they're in trouble. And perhaps you're in that camp. You just say, you know what, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy this idea of sin and guilt. Yeah, maybe some mistakes were made, which is the current sort of non-apology apology. Mistakes have been made. I mean, mistakes aren't sin, and saying mistakes were made doesn't mean you made them. And, and maybe if you did make them, you know, it was, it was the government's fault, it was the environment, it was your teachers, it was your parents. Yeah, mistakes were made. But it's very different from saying, I am a sinner. So if you're in this camp today, if, if you're really sort of tired of, of hearing that you're guilty, then... I appreciate the fact that you're here and you're listening. I I simply would want to say a few things to you. First of all, I'm not going to try and persuade you that you're that bad. Because you'll just get offended and think I'm a jerk and we won't really get anywhere. So I will leave the conviction of sin to the Holy Spirit. But I would ask you to at least recognize that uh, you are being, I think, Uh, remarkably unreflective because most people when they stop and think about their life would be willing to admit that they have not even been as good as they would like to be right I had a roommate in college and uh in the fraternity brother and he used to um just sort of the conviction of living with, I was a new believer at the time, quite zealous, and the conviction of sort of being around, I wasn't saying a lot, but he drew a line on uh, his closet door one day, uh, Saturday morning. He goes, okay, he goes, I, I, I reached a new low. Okay, so here I am, but this is as low as I ever will get. Okay, so there's, he goes, I, you watch, I'm going up. So the next weekend he goes, okay, slightly lower than last week, but this is bedrock. And then the next week he goes, okay, I actually dug, but just, you know, I am, you watch, I'm getting better. And I'm just saying, hey, you're not even living up to your own standards. Forget the standards of God. You can't even keep your own standards no matter how low you make them. The the writings of the philosophers, the journals of reflective people, 
generally are, are filled with people saying, I wish I was better. I disappoint myself. I, I hurt the people I love. I'm tired of that. I could stand here for two hours and read you the, 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 the writings, the, the sort of pithy statements that are made by people when the light goes on. I'll, I'll, I'll simply get, leave you with the one from Rousseau because it's particularly ironic. Rousseau made his uh, sort of name as a political writer arguing that men were good as opposed to, as opposed to the Judeo-Christian ethic and the Judeo-Christian political philosophy which says we need three branches of government because we don't trust people with power. We've got to create checks and balances. Rousseau argued, you know what? People are good. Inherently, they're good. They just need a little bit better environment and everything will work. Rousseau's statement, believing that men are good, he says, I don't know what's in the heart of a good man. I don't know what's in the heart of a rascal. I know what's in the heart of a good man, and it's horrible. We, We try hard to be good, but we fail. And so I would point out to you, if you're not feeling particularly Guilty like you are broken and need God to forgive you in any way, shape, or form. I just want to say I think you're being unreflective. And also you should at least recognize that what the Bible says is that we are all broken. And have fallen short of God's standards. We are all sinners and that the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. And Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 10, 27, Do not fear him who is able to destroy your body, but unable to destroy your soul. Instead, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Those are shocking words. But there are some people who just don't feel guilty. There's a second camp, and this leads us towards the second point. That is, uh, people who get that they are guilty, but don't understand that God is forgiving. I said this prayer sort of assumes that we're guilty, and it also assumes that God is forgiving. But there are some of you who I know are quietly miserable because you get that you have done things that were bad. But you don't understand that God offers a new start. That God's mercies are new every morning. You don't get that you can be forgiven. And so uh, you are broken. And often you can put on a game face and you can go for a while feeling good because you sort of fill the downtime. But every once in a while you are reminded of what you've done or you're just feeling melancholy. And when you sort of face what you have done, you are overwhelmed and, and broken and crushed. And when someone like me stands up here and says, you know what? God loves you and God will forgive you. You say, whether you say it out loud or not, you think, you know, I believe that God loves you. And I believe that God loves her. And I believe that God loves him. And I believe that God can forgive you and forgive her and forgive him. But you don't know what 
I've done. Okay, well, unless you've told me, I don't know what you've done. But I, I, I have not started in ministry recently. I know what people generally mean when they say, you don't know what I've done. I know what people have done when they say, you don't know what I've done. I mean, we're, we're not that original. <laughs> we're not that special, right? And so what I've heard from people who don't believe that they can be forgiven are lots of sexual sins, ranging from minor through serial adultery and uh, abortion and all manner of affairs and all kinds of problems. And I hear uh, duplicate lives and the consequences of lying to bosses and embezzling funds and and being, being not who anyone thinks they are. And I've heard cruel acts towards people they should be protecting. Children who have been hit or who have been emotionally traumatized. Or I hear uh, uh, lying to everyone and spouses or heard murder, hit and run. It's, 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 a, it's an ugly list. But I'm here to say... Um, while you are remarkably significant, your significance compared to God is not that great. You can't do something that is worse than God's love. You're not that significant. You can't break the system. God loves you not because you're lovable. We're not lovable. God loves us because God loves is love. It's his character. And so, if you are feeling broken, the good news is you're halfway there. Your heart works. It's a good thing. You should feel bad about the things that you have done. That's the right response. To be selfish, to be abusive, to do those things, yes, you should feel convicted for that. It, it's, it means you're halfway there. You're in a better spot than the people who are carefree. But you now have to accept the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word is he can forgive. As a matter of fact, <laughs> that's his nature. That's his character. He is a forgiving God. This past summer, I I preached the parable of of the prodigal son and argued that it should be called the parable of the running father. Because when you look at that story, it's not very shocking that a young man wanted a bunch of money so he could go live a fast life. And it's not very shocking that when he got it, he ended up spending it all. And it's not very shocking that when he found himself living among the pigs that he decided to crawl home to his parents. And it's not very shocking that when his father accepted him back in, that his older brother got his nose bent out of joint. None of that is shocking. What is shocking in the story, and especially shocking when you read it in the context of the first century Middle Eastern culture, what is horribly shocking and what Christ's listeners would have been overwhelmed by was the fact that the father ran to welcome his son back. 
with open arms. That is what is shocking about that parable. He forgives. It is his nature to forgive. And this is what we see with Christ also. Right When you read through the Gospels, pay attention to how many times whatever is going on, whatever the problem is, whatever someone has said, Christ's response is to forgive them. Right? Sometimes they're not asking for forgiveness. They, they, they bring a person born blind. Christ forgives them. Someone, someone shows up who, who has been in serial affairs. Christ forgives them. A woman is caught in adultery. Christ forgives her. A woman stumbles into a a party that Christ is having, walks over to him. Think about this. How odd would this be? You're at a party. Suddenly a woman walks in, walks over to someone, and starts weeping and and uses the tears to to wash his feet and her hair to dry his feet. Jesus forgives her. He forgives so quickly and so frequently. It's one of the things that drives the religious leaders furious. Who is this man? I mean, it's one thing if you, if you harm me for me to say to you, I forgive you of that. It's an entirely different thing if you harm someone else and I step in and say, I forgive you of that. Well, what gives me the right to forgive you of that? It's a claim to be God. And, and, and part of the way Jesus makes the claim to be God is he goes around forgiving people. It advertises How quick God is to forgive. So I don't know what you've done. I don't need to know. I'm not asking to know. What I'm here to tell you is there is no sin that you could have done that is greater than God's love and offer for forgiveness. But, and that leads to the third point, we're expected to ask. The instruction we get from Christ in this prayer is, we are to pray, forgive us our debts. We are to admit that we are guilty, and we are to ask for forgiveness. We are to have an attitude of repentance, not just one-time repentance. There is a repentance that leads unto faith. There is a moment when we are expected for the first time because the light goes on and we get it, that Christ is Lord and we can be forgiven. When we bow our knee and we declare that Jesus is Lord and we accept his forgiveness, and that is a forgiveness that is past, present, and future. When we're asking as Christians and we're going through life asking to be forgiven, it is to restore a relationship in which we've already been justified. This is a prayer we're to pray over and over. We are to have an an attitude that is characterized by asking God to forgive us. And so he instructs us in this prayer to make part of the ongoing cadence of our prayer life this request. Father, forgive us our sins. So, I don't know where you're at. I mean, maybe you're here. You don't buy any of this. You're not guilty. If you're here, I, I, my prayer for you will be that you will feel the conviction of God. And that you will move here. But if you're here, I hope you don't stay here long. And for those of you who have camped here, I want to say, you know what? <laughs> there is life here. And when we stand here, it, it, it's not that we're not aware of our sin I am. 
but I, I'm, I'm, and I'm shocked by it. I'm shocked by how broken I remain. But I'm more amazed and spend more time thinking about the mercy and grace of God than I do about how bad I could be. This is the place we want to end up. And so as we come to this table today, I want to suggest that wherever you are along this spectrum, we pause again and we ask God through his spirit to point out what we need to ask to be forgiven of. And some of you are, 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 are going to need to do this more than once, or at least you're going to need to understand that uh, the feelings may not follow quickly. Guilt is a complicated thing. Some people don't feel guilty when they should. Others feel guilty for things they should no longer feel guilty about. It's hard to forgive someone, including yourself. So the feelings may take a while, but I want to say we want to ask God to, to shine the light of truth into our hearts, to bring to light anything that we need to ask for forgiveness of. And so I want to invite those who are going to distribute the communion elements to come forward. And as they do, in just a second, I'm going to pray for us what I simply want to point out at this moment is one that I I want to advertise that this communion table is open to anyone and everyone who has made a decision to make Christ their Savior and Lord. It is not restricted by church membership, but it is restricted by people who know Christ who are willing once again to allow God to speak to them and to have an attitude of active repentance about them at this moment. And I want to ask that you would hold on to these elements uh, so that we might partake of them together. Would you please join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are amazed that we have been instructed, uh, given permission by your Son, our Savior, to ask for forgiveness again and yet clearly we are given that opportunity and that responsibility and so lord god we come before you right now praying holy spirit that you would you would meet with us you would you would shine truth into our lives and help us see the attitudes the actions that we need to confess and repent of and move forward Meet with us as we prepare to come to this table, we pray in Christ's name.